When the Arizona Territory was created in 1863, with it came a whole slate of territorial officials that had to be appointed. Not surprising, it took a while before everything was filled. So, starting in 1863, one of the officials in the Territory of New Mexico, one John A. Clark, had to pitch in for Arizona as well. Though someone had been named for that position in Arizona in 1864, it appears that he either did very little or nothing at all, possibly because of a lack of government funding. So Clark would make trips into Arizona in 1863 and 1865 to fulfill his obligation. In 1867, that duty was taken from him and attached to the person with the same position in California, before in 1870, Arizona finally received an official of its own. This was John Wasson, who in coming years would be succeeded by Joseph W. Robbins, Royal A. Johnson, John Heiss, Levi H. Manning, and others. Some of those names might sound familiar, and you may recollect that these men were all surveyors general for Arizona at one point or another, in the case of Johnson twice. Primary among their duties was what the name of the office implies, the surveying of public lands. How important is that office really to the development of a territory? Well, it was pretty darn important. Because when disagreements about who owned what land popped up, it could mean dire consequences for the losing side. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 149, Baca Float Number 3. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed last week's episode as we rode along the border with the Arizona Rangers. This week, we're going to turn our attention to something that I could have slotted in about 10 episodes back after wrapping up the discussion about the Baron of Arizona. The reason I didn't was both a lack of preparedness on my part, and also because today's topic actually reaches decades past the final decision that brought down Revis and his scheme. And for the record, you can expect a lot more of this time hopping in the coming weeks and months as we repeatedly jump over and then rewind back from the holy line of demarcation separating the 19th and 20th centuries. We are about to tackle some major movements, actions, and dramatic set pieces in the early 20th century that will necessitate laying some groundwork in the latter part of the 19th century. If you are okay with that time hopping, let's get down to it. The reason I said today's subject could have come at the end of our series about the Baron of Arizona is because it deals with something that was intimately connected with the end of his story. That is, the Court of Private Land Claims. Because remember that Rivas was taking advantage of a confusing situation as all the land grants made during the Spanish and Mexican eras were still just kind of floating out there, with hardly any movement made to confirm them. Okay, time for a brief recap of things we learned in the last few years. So, remember from forever ago in episode 28 that the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo specifically stated that the United States would honor any Mexican land grants, 
as long as they were duly recorded in the annals of Mexico, that is. And we also explored how that was a very problematic clause, because it wasn't like anyone was keeping that good of records while surviving on the frontier in the early 1800s. In episode 28, again, we followed around Ensign Comodaran as he tried to get written records for various old families in Tucson in the last years of Mexican rule. Then in episode 136, while talking about Revis jumping through the hoops, we learned the fairly cumbersome process to get your grant recognized. That included submitting your documentation to the U.S. Surveyor General in the Territory. The Surveyor General then made a thorough investigation and submitted a report to the U.S. Secretary of the Interior, who then had to review it and submit the claim to Congress for their approval. I wish I could come up with a funnier joke than this, but yeah, with Congress involved, you know this was going to be a drawn-out process. In episode 136, I laid out some statistics, with more than a thousand claims being submitted from across the Southwest in the decades following the Mexican-American War, but by Rivas' time, Congress had only reviewed 150 of them, and of those, it had only approved 71. To deal with this truly monumental backlog, Congress set up the Court of Private Land Claims just to deal with anyone who said they had a land grant that dated back to Spain, Mexico, or even France. And, as I mentioned a couple times now, Arizonans, and by that I mean the white American Arizonans who had moved into the territory, absolutely hated the idea of the court, because they believed it would be used as the tool of land thieves working to gain the system. What they were probably really afraid of was that the land they were living on was part of a claim going through all the red tape and that one day someone, or some community, could be told that they were illegally squatting on somebody else's property. If you want a brief rundown on land grants made in Arizona, go back and re-listen to episodes 13 and 20, where we talk about some of the ranches and other areas set up in southern Arizona under Mexican auspices. We will review some of them here, but I highly suggest listening to those older episodes both to refresh your memory and, well, they're good times, and I'm all for everyone listening to this podcast over and over again. So go ahead, pause here, and come back when you've given them a listen. I'm okay waiting. You back yet? Great. Where were we? Like I said in the opening... Investigating the 18 claims originating in Arizona fell to the U.S. Surveyor General in New Mexico when Arizona was first created as a territory in 1863, but a Surveyor General in the territory itself was established in 1870. Early state historian James H. McClintock pessimistically says that Wasson and his successors in his office, quote, could do no more than to gather up the loose ends of the land-grant claims, end quote. According to one source, by 1883, only 15 grants in Arizona had been reported on, but Congress had yet to act on a single one. McClintock says that all the grants in Arizona totaled nearly 859,000 acres, so it's not an unsubstantial amount that we're talking about. Let's parse through some of them right now. There were only a handful of grants confirmed during the Spanish era. In episode 13, we talked about the grant given to Torrebio Ortero in 1789 in the area of Tumac, which his family would stay on for 140 years. However, I don't see that the court ever really ruled on their full land grant, 
mainly because their property was temporarily left unoccupied as everyone fled from the Apaches in the 1830s. The Otero family, meanwhile, went to be foundational pioneers in southern Arizona and are all over the history of Tucson and surrounding communities throughout the 1800s and 1900s. Some of the historic buildings from the Otero homestead can apparently still be seen on the grounds of the Tupac Golf Resort. Another grant was for the San Ignacio de la Canoa grant, which was given in 1821 and registered with Mexico in 1849 before being confirmed by the Court of Private Land Claims in 1899. Though obviously it lost some land over time, the Canoa Ranch is still with us today, sitting on the eastern side of Interstate 19, just south of Green Valley. As I mentioned in episode 16, it's operated by Pima County now as part of the Raul M. Grijalva Canoa Ranch Conservation Park, and you can visit there to get a taste of what ranch life was like back then. We've also talked about the San Bernardino Grant down in the southeastern corner of Arizona, which has made too many appearances in our podcast to mention them all. This one is also a bit of a tricky situation because, as I mentioned back in episode 16, the original owner, Ignacio Perez, never technically received a title for it. It was recorded in Arispe, but never in Mexico City. Over the years, it would be abandoned and then changed hands a number of times, eventually popping up in our story as the John Slaughter Ranch. The Court of Public Land Claims would eventually rule that since most of the original grant was down in Mexico, it would only confirm around 2,400 acres that were actually in Arizona. Elsewhere, the court rejected the nearly 7,600-acre San Jose de Sonora grant on the grounds that the treasurer of Sonora hadn't originally possessed the authority to sell the land in the first place. However, in a rare instance of the U.S. Supreme Court siding with the claimant, the justices reversed this decision, though they only confirmed a little more than 5,100 acres. The reason for the disparity is that some of the land was overlapping the Baca float number three, which we'll be getting to in just a moment. Another fun throwback to episode 16 is the San Rafael de la Zanje grant, which sits on the border between the Huachuca and Patagonia Mountains and had some pretty sweet grazing land for cattle. The original grant was only four square leagues, originally issued in Mexico in 1825, and the Court of Public Land Claims actually straight up approved this grant. But then the now American owners got greedy. See, they appealed to the Supreme Court claiming that when the original grant said four square leagues, what was really meant was a square with each side being four leagues. If I'm doing the math right, and remember there's a reason that I'm not in a math-heavy career, they basically tried to increase what had been a grant that was roughly 36 square miles into one that was more like 108 square miles. The Supreme Court, already disinclined to side with those submitting grants, rejected this faulty math out of hand. Of all the grants issued, and properly documented during the Mexican era, the Court of Public Land Claims would only hold up four of them. The rest all appealed to the Supreme Court, where they all lost. And just to give you some perspective on what exactly we're talking about here, McClintock tells us that only a little more than 121,000 acres of grant land was actually upheld by the court, which is just over 14% of all the acres that were submitted for the court's approval. 
I don't want to get into all the other land claims, but a couple I do want to mention. The first is the nearly 142,000 acre El Soperi claim, which the court struck down for good reason. Apparently this wasn't a real claim at all, but a fiction that the Soperi Land and Mining Company had created out of hot air and forged documents. So I guess you can say that the Peralta Grant had a tiny little brother in southern Arizona. The next one actually ties back to something I mentioned in episode 13. For those of you who didn't immediately pause to go back and re-listen to that episode, and you know who you are, here's the refresher. In 1806, the Amerindian tribes who had been living at the missions at Tumacacri and Guavavi went to Arispe and petitioned for a grant for the land they had been living on for generations now. This had been granted in the documentation written out in 1807, with the common stipulation at the time that if the lands were ever vacant for a certain period of years, they could be sold at auction. Well, that was fine and dandy during the peace by purchase era, but eventually the system fell apart and everyone was sent flying in every direction to get out of the way of resurgent Apache attacks. Fast forward to episode 20, where we learned that Mexico just up and declared that the mission lands had in fact been abandoned and were sold at auction in 1844. What's worse is that the natives had essentially lent their documentation to someone to survey some land adjoining theirs, and well, that guy straight up either lost or didn't bother to return it. This is where Francisco Alejandro Aguilar swooped in and bought the land. And for those of you who didn't pause this episode to go back and listen to episode 20 again, and you definitely know who you are, Aguilar just so happened to be the brother-in-law to Manuel Maria Gandara, the off-and-on-again governor and political boss of Sonora. And that's a name I haven't gotten to throw around in a while. Gandara would run a small ranch near Tumacacri, which we also mentioned numerous times in previous episodes, and where he would be living in the 1850s after Ignacio Pesquera ran him out of Mexico. And that's yet another name I haven't been able to throw around in some time. Once the Yankees came in, however, they soon took control of the ranch, and by the 1860s, none other than Sylvester Mowry was writing that the area belonged to the Gondora family, but it was inhabited by Americans. Aguilar deeded the land to Gondra in the 1860s, and the ex-governor actually petitioned the Surveyor General of New Mexico to survey his land so he could get the ball rolling for Congress to recognize his property. This actually never happened, and in 1878, Gondra would sell his land to a San Francisco businessman, who in turn sold an interest in the land to another man. They got the ball rolling immediately to have Congress recognize the chain of custody, Though, before it had gone too far, they actually sold the land to the Calabasas Land and Mining Company, which would change its name to the Santa Rita Mining Company. Now, the Surveyor General's report on this grant was favorable, though Congress, surprise, surprise, was slow to act on this. In the meantime, the descendants of Aguilar actually challenged the Santa Rita Mining Company for the land, something that led them through multiple court battles up to the Supreme Court. The highest body in the land ruled in favor of the mining company, saying that since Congress hadn't acted yet to confirm the land's ownership, it couldn't be contested in court. What's interesting, though, or at least interesting to me, not sure how you feel about it, 
is that people who had homesteaded on this land were now getting kind of antsy that no one had ruled on it. They actually asked for an investigation, saying that the titles that the mining company owned were invalid and that the land should again be declared public domain. This opened up a whole other legal can of worms that also rolled its way to the Court of Public Land Claims, which ruled that the title was indeed illegal because of a technicality. Apparently, the treasurer of the state of Sonora, who had sold the land to Aguilar, didn't have the authority to do so, and the land should have been public domain from the get-go. Or, at least, that's what the court ruled. Another appeal to the Supreme Court later, and the highest court in the land upheld this view of things. They declared that the missions at Guavavi, Calabasas, and Tumacacri had been abandoned in 1806 and in 1820, and so the land had been public domain. I have to say that I don't feel too bad about the mining company losing out on this territory, but where my sympathy really lies is with the Odom. They could tell you that the missions were not abandoned that early. They had been there, toiling away while looking over their shoulders for marauding Apache. And they had actually acquired the title to the land, it had been signed, registered, and handed over to them. But like most things involving both the Americans and the Mexicans, they had been hosed over when it came to getting what was rightfully theirs. In more ways than one, if you think about it. But with those relatively small potatoes out of the way, it's now time to come to the granddaddy of all land claim controversies. The Baca Floats. For starters, a baca float is not some very disgusting-sounding soda-based dessert. And it is not a Mexican-era land grant in Arizona, but rather a Spanish-era one from New Mexico. I'll explain. The grant itself was made to Don Luis Maria Baca, who was born in Santa Fe in 1752. Many sources simply list his name as Luis Maria Baca, but a couple say that his full name was actually Luis Maria Cabeza de Baca, who was the descendant of none other than Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Baca, whose North American Odyssey we trace back in episode 5. So I guess I should pause here now and let you all go back and re-listen to episode 5, which, among other things, contains one of my all-time favorite jokes I've ever made on this podcast. Don Luis was apparently not a very nice man, the Amerindians accused him of intimidation and fraud, and he would ultimately be prosecuted for abuse toward them. He would also have something like 22 children by three different wives, and it's implied that he wasn't exactly the family type. He would ultimately die in 1827 during a scuffle with Mexican soldiers over some contraband pelts. However, in 1821, six years before he shuffled off his mortal coil, he petitioned the Spanish government for a 500,000-acre land grant in New Mexico, something that was granted, except Mexico had technically won its independence by this point. Now, Baca and his family were driven off the land by raiding Comanches, but a few decades later, when those had been driven off, settlers moved in and applied to the Mexican government for a community grant, which would be the basis for the town of Las Vegas, New Mexico. 
as you might imagine, Baca's descendants cried foul over this. But they weren't given any sort of relief until after the U.S. came into possession of the Southwest. They wouldn't just evict a whole town, so the U.S. Congress in 1860 basically told the family that they could select up to five 100,000-acre plots of land anywhere in the territory of New Mexico. And this is why they were known as floats, because they could be placed anywhere in the territory and were not tied to any specific point. The only conditions were that the land had to be vacant and not have any mineral wealth attached. Because New Mexico was basically this giant blob in 1860, two of the floats were settled in the current state of New Mexico, one in Colorado, and two, you guessed it, were in Arizona. No sooner had this been arranged than the heirs actually sold their interest in several of the floats to their lawyer, a land-speculating jurist and politician by the name of John S. Watts. Watts bought the property for a cent per acre and instantly decided that, oops, I think that float number three is in the wrong place. In 1863, float number three was a massive square that basically started at Tubac as its upper leftmost corner and then ran down past Tumacacri to present-day Rio Rico. This despite the fact that Tubac and Tumacacri, as you well know, were not vacant. But Watts decided in 1866 to move the float to the north and east, basically covering the Santa Rita Mountains with Josephine Peak being more or less in the center. The major problem with this is that the Santa Ritas were a rich mining area despite the provision that the flows were supposed to cover land without mineral wealth. Watts also apparently tried to sell the land to William Wrightson, the namesake of Mount Wrightson in the Santa Ritas and the president of a mining company, but Wrightson was killed by Apache in 1865 while trying to make a survey. Oh, and Watts also said that this was merely an amended location, though in reality only a small corner between the two sites overlap, so really this was a whole new location. The fallout from this would go on for years. Watts would die in 1876, but ownership of Baca Float No. 3 would continue changing hands at regular intervals. At various points in the 1870s and 1880s, the various owners tried to get the grant recognized by the U.S. government, but it always got held up in red tape and didn't really progress. In the meantime, the old Tumacacri and Calabasas grants, which we talked about before, were going through the grant process and eventually declared public land. And those old grants actually covered part of the original 1863 location of Baca Float No. 3, so now there are homesteaders on this contested piece of property. It could take hours to go over the legal entanglements of all of this, but basically in 1908, the Surveyor General said that the Baca claim should be thrown out as it was obvious that it had been put on occupied, mineral-rich land which was against the rules. Watts's heirs and others fought this decision up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled in 1914 that the new location Watts proposed in 1866 was invalid, but that, incredibly, the original 1863 location had been valid. And that meant everyone who had homesteaded there 
were suddenly squatters on somebody else's territory. Make no mistake, the new owners were not the accommodating types. McClintock tells us that the float had some 70 families on it, with most of them homesteading there for more than two decades. These were ordered to be evicted, and though some were able to buy back their own land from the new owners, most were forced out. Some of these families racked up great expenses trying to fight this injustice while others simply refused to be moved. But by 1919, the last of the families had been forced out by U.S. Marshals. The only upside is that after two tries, Congress passed a Relief Act in 1921 to allow scattered families to be compensated with land in other parts of Arizona. But for many families, this was a cold comfort. Even now, more than a hundred years later, the descendants of those dispossessed families still remember this whole land speculation scheme with more than a bit of bitterness. So that's the infamous Baca float number three in a nutshell, which ultimately did more real damage to people than the infamous Peralta Grant. But before we leave off talking today, I want to remind you that there were two Baca floats in Arizona, not one. So let's briefly turn our attention to Baca float number five. This was situated in western Yavapai County along Walnut Creek northwest of Prescott. It too would go through a series of hands before being bought by a land speculator out of California named Edward B. Perrin. Perrin had been born in Alabama and served as a doctor in the Confederate Army before moving to California and finding success buying future railroad right-of-way. One of his partners for some of his holdings was none other than George Hurst, the father of future tycoon William Randolph Hearst. Perrin and his sons would try ranching on this new property in Arizona, alternatively trying cattle and sheep to make a go of it. However, the land was rough and remote, lacked a year-round water source, and Perrin struggled to pay taxes on it. He would die deeply, deeply in the red, and in 1936, the float was bought by the Green Cattle Company. This cattle company had been started by the, let's call him colorful, William Cornell Green, who went by Colonel William Green in the same way that Colonel Sanders was a colonel, who had made his fortune in copper mining down by Cananea, Sonora. I will throw back yet again to another episode, this time episode 130, when I talked about James Burnett, the crooked justice of the peace and de facto ruler of the town of Charleston. I won't make you go back and re-listen to that episode, but we talked about how Burnett had been accosted and shot on the streets of Tombstone by a man who accused him of blowing up a dam which had caused his daughter to drown. I mentioned it at the time because, as you all know, I can't resist a salacious story, but it turns out it was a good thing I did because Green is the man who shot and killed Burnett. How I love it when episodes connect to each other. Anyway, Green had built himself quite the little mining empire, liquidated a lot of money from it, and tried his hand at cattle ranching. He would die in 1911, but by the time of his passing, he had built himself quite the cattle operation. Green's general manager would end up taking over the company and marrying Green's widow to boot. And he would oversee the purchase of Baca Float No. 5 and also buy a neighboring ranch to put the land into a better position to raise cattle on it year-round, 
along with digging stock tanks to deal with the lack of a permanent water source. This proved to be a winning strategy, and eventually Green's son, Charles, would take over the ranch, now dubbed the O.R.O., and build up a reputation of it being one of the finest ranches of its size. And it would remain a strictly horseback operation for decades, well after modern inventions came along. And according to an article in Arizona Highways magazine, its mule-drawn chuck wagon was one of the last to operate in the state. The Green family's other holdings south of the border would be seized by the Mexican government in the 1950s, but the O.R.O. would continue under Charles Green's management until 1973 when he sold it. The buyers were the J.J.J. Corporation, run by John N. Irwin II, who would leave it to his son, John N. Irwin III, and daughter, Jane Droba, who still run the ranch to this day. Now, if for some reason the name John N. Irwin catches your attention, please award yourself five points for having what might be considered a freakishly good memory. Because we have encountered a John N. Irwin before, but in that case it was John N. Irwin I. In fact, we talked about him in episode 132 as the former governor of Idaho and last governor of Arizona to be from outside the territory. He had been a very honest, earnest man, but some questionable pardons and appointments had led to his downfall. Wow, this episode unexpectedly really became a walk down memory lane. So, the legacy of Baca Float number 5 turned out to be much less contentious or disastrous than that of Baca Float number 3. I hope you see how each shows the way land rights developed in the territory. Sometimes the titles were clear and non-controversial, while other times they were anything but. And we can't forget, of course, that a lot of this stems back to the lands that Mexicans and Spaniards claimed, and from which a whole lot of Amerindians had to be relocated. Also, now you have a lot more context for the environment that Rivas tried to take advantage of. Next week, we will turn from the grants to something, in the words of Monty Python, completely different. As our next episode will also mark the show's 150th, I've decided to finally make my threat a reality and do that vaguely self-indulgent history of newspapers in the Arizona Territory. Until then, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.